When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 117th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is how do we overcome polarization? I'm joined by David Livermore. He is the author of Digital, Diverse, and Divided, How to Talk to Racists, Compete with Robots, and Overcome Polarization. The publisher is Barrett Kohler Publishers. David is the president and co-founder of the Cultural Intelligence Center in East Lansing, Michigan. He's also a research fellow at Nanyang Technical University in Singapore. He's held a variety of leadership positions in nonprofit organizations around the world and has also taught in a number of universities besides being a speaker and advisor to Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, and governments. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks, Dan. Great. So um, let's uh, dive in. What's the book about? So this is a book about how to get along with anyone who has a different view than you about polarizing topics like abortion rights, racial injustice, politics, gender fluidity, you name it. Depends depends what week we're in, what the the polarizing issue is. (laughs) And uh, really, I I teach readers the same method I've been teaching global executives and foreign diplomats um, for 20 years. That is, how do we use the power of differences to solve complex problems? So it's, it's a book that takes my work in cultural intelligence and brings it into the forefront of how we do this, not only when we're working abroad, but how we do it with perhaps people in our own community or maybe even people in our own families. Okay. So uh, the book opens with a quote from Martin Luther King, and it, it cites the role of fear. Uh, but you also, of course, talk about trust that we need to get at through contact and collaborative problem solving. Can you talk to me just a bit about the, uh, I guess I'll call it the fear-trust dynamic? How do you move from one to the other? What, do the, what does it entail in each case? Yeah. So, I mean, it, as you noted, there's a reason that, that digital is in uh, the title of the book, because this whole dynamic of fear and trust, I feel like, has taken on a very different form given the nature of social media and kind of the constant news uh, frenzy headlines that we get. Um, but I, I think part of what we get in in the book is really trying to look at this notion that that fear is wired into to who we are. And so a lot, a lot of your listeners would be very familiar with the work on bias that talks about how we immediately kind of move into this friend versus foe mindset and talks about how do we actually like begin to find some common ground with each other 
in our shared humanity and trying to solve some similar problems and that that can at least be the pathway towards starting to build trust rather than starting in a position of fear of, of what the other side is going to do or is thinking about. Sure. Well, given the polarization we have right now, I think I would nominate you for a Nobel Peace Prize if you could manage to quell <laughs> polarization on your I, own. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm supposed to say this in, a, in an interview promoting the book, but I admit there are days I'm like, really? Is it this easy? Like, so <laughs> by, by no means am I suggesting that, that the work that we do is the silver bullet, but hopefully it's an important piece of moving us forward. Um, no, I'm into that, but it, it is a difficult task given what's what's been going on lately. So you do mention the book that uh, you suggest that cultural intelligence, what you call CQ, kind of uh, picks up the the pace from where emotional intelligence EQ leaves off. Uh, can you talk about that transition, or I really guess it's an extension, as it were? Yeah, no, I, I was fascinated to have this conversation with you, given all of your expertise in the emotional intelligence realm. So yeah, it actually, even from a research standpoint, emerges from the same body of research, noting that in today's world, we need more than just IQ and cognitive smarts. So it's, as you know, far better than I do with your background, you know, emotional intelligence is to what degree am I aware of? And can I imagine the emotions of myself and others where we picked up on that work with cultural intelligence is to say emotional intelligence gives you an important skill set. If you're interacting with someone who comes from a familiar background, I can read their body language. I have a sense of what their silence means or their, their animated motions. Um, but we often uh, misinterpret what those cues mean if we're dealing with someone who comes from a different cultural background than us or somebody who's just kind of learned different social norms. So uh, yeah, you, you said it well, we, we really do see cultural intelligence as an extension of emotional intelligence that it picks up where the emotional intelligence leaves off and allows us in this very diverse world in which we all live to have that same kind of common sense, social sensibility as we're interacting with people who have very different ideas, opinions, backgrounds than we do. Yeah, come from different places, different race, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's four factors you mentioned there. I'll, I'll maybe uh, hit on a couple of them. One is motivation. And you say the the drive to be open, it leads to an interesting question. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is often cited by presidential historians for his amazing openness, open-mindedness. Uh, but if you're not sitting across from Thomas Jefferson, uh, how do you know you have someone who's open or wouldn't? what might be the signals that they're more closed and you got a little bit more difficult conversation ahead of you. Yeah, this this is a tricky one uh, because, you know, the, the number one thing that predicts whether or not someone's culturally intelligent is their openness. And I think I have at times just in my own interpersonal interactions misread whether somebody was or wasn't open because someone can feign openness only to find, oh, they were just baiting me to use whatever I'm going to say to just further promote their polarizing viewpoint. On the other hand, sometimes, you know, if I just use the emotional cues that I'm used to from the Canadian home that I was brought up in, you and I were talking about that a little bit before the interview, um, I, I can think that somebody who's very animated and, and loud and boisterous is, well, clearly they aren't open. So I think it's kind of picking up on, like, a, here's a, a practical question that I will often say to someone, would you be open to considering a different perspective on this? And very rarely is somebody going to say, hell no, you know, there's no way I'll consider it. <laughs> um, and 
you know, then just kind of playing itself out like, okay, just, just work with me for a minute and let's hear each other. And of course it means I better have the Thomas Jefferson openness on my side too, and truly be willing to be open to their perspective on, on my viewpoint. Sure. And you mentioned in the book, uh, Toyota, I guess has this, uh, uh, tool of five whys to keep trying to explore or, you know, take the onion and peel it back and see what's going on, uh, which I, I liked very much. Uh, the other thing was you talked about flexibility, and I really love the quote about Darwin that you invoked. It's not the strongest and the smartest, but the most adaptable uh, certainly in this culture, this world, this economy, uh, that adaptiveness really seems to be crucial to uh, what's going to need to happen for people. So wh where do you find the most acceptance of of your messaging and the CQ? Is it uh, that people uh, see the light or do they feel the heat and they need to change? Uh, which, what's going on for you with that? You know, what's interesting uh, about that question, Dan, is when I first got engaged in the cultural intelligence research 20 years ago, I expected that the greatest receptivity would be in the most cosmopolitan places, the Singapore's, the London's, the New York's, the Toronto's. And in point of fact, I actually found a greater resonance in the Grand Rapids, Michigan's, where I've lived for the last several years, places in the Midwest, um, places that have been more homogeneous overseas. And my hunch is that it's, it's a harder sell to talk about something like cultural intelligence to somebody in New York. I, I know because I spent a lot of time there in my growing up years because it's kind of like, give me a break. We're New York. How many different people did I just walk by on the way to the subway, etc.? Whereas, you know, when I moved to Grand Rapids, people were like, oh, crap, there's people from a different with a different passport moving in next door. And I don't even know how I'm supposed to engage in in small talk with them, not to mention like somebody who might vote for a different political candidate than me. So that was a very long answer to your, your question. But I actually find surprisingly for me, the most receptivity is sometimes those who are like, I, I, I'm not familiar with this. I'm not as well traveled as someone else, but I, I want to do this right. And, you know, take this beyond international diplomacy or understanding to people just saying, I, I don't really get the whole gender fluidity thing, et cetera, but I, I want to understand it. I don't want to be the jerk, but I, I just don't get it. Like, do you have a uterus or, or not? Like, so that I think that's maybe <laughs> where you get into some of this openness that we were just talking about is, is there at least a, a leaning into saying, I don't get it. And I may not even agree with you, but, but help me at least understand what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. Well, someone else said, lean in, but don't look down. Uh, take the other person on, on a level ground and take them seriously and show respect and, yeah, see where the conversation uh, might go. So I'm a little curious. I mean, you know, in our conversation, indeed, beforehand, we talked about your being a Canadian and my being from Minnesota, where we have this phrase, Minnesota nice, to which a friend of mine said, well, there's, there's also Minnesota ice, which is I'll be friendly with you, but you won't get to deeply know me because I'm going <laughs> to hold back a lot of things because I'm I'm Scandinavian. Um, so when you did your, your own uh, culture center's uh, cultural value profile, being a Canadian, uh, what popped up for you? Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, I think, you know, and again, one of the things we teach very much about is to not have any kind of broad swaths of how we describe Scandinavians or Canadians, much less millennials or, or blacks. But that said, I, I did sort of grow up in the quintessential, more traditional Canadian home of being more neutral in my communication style. And so, you know, sometimes people will be like, 
wow, I, I thought you were either entirely bored or not very enthusiastic because of the neutral expression on your face. Um, and so that that's sometimes that's that's again where emotional intelligence by itself could throw someone off because they're assuming that I'm not engaged or perhaps I'm aloof um, based upon my my Canadian orientation. I think uh, one other one that comes to mind is again if we're talking about the dominant norms in Canada throughout the years, this is certainly changing as there are so many immigrants who have made Canada their home. But Canada tends to be very um, anti-hierarchical. So even in the U.S., you know, I, I don't wear my Ph.D. as any kind of badge. But usually, you know, if you're speaking, someone will want to point out, you know, this is Dr. So-and-so who did his research on on XYZ and in Canada, as we would say, XYZ, of course. But um, in Canada, it's kind of like, oh, please, please please don't mention the PhD because now I'm going to have to somehow prove to them that I, I'm not, you know, all that or don't think I'm all that, etc. So those were things that kind of like resonated with me when I took our own cultural values profile. Like, yeah, I just kind of have antibodies in my system toward people using formal titles and a lot of pomp and circumstance and had to take pause and go, okay, but that, that doesn't mean they're cocky or arrogant. It might be, but I, I also have met some very cocky people who say they're not about titles. And then I find out, oh, actually, no, they're, they're pretty full of themselves, even though you know they, they don't insist that I use a formal title for them. So, Sure. No, well, my, my family's from North Dakota. There's not a lot of blue bloods in North Dakota, so we don't tend to stand on, stand on titles. Unlike a professor, I remember once at an event at the uh, University of Santa Barbara who uh, had a question for the visiting speaker, but uh, first had to spend about three minutes as preamble giving us her, her credentials before she offered the question. Um, speaking of values, we were just talking about the cultural values profile. I was really interested in the part where you talked in the book about an organization's values, because I think we both know far too often that ends up being a plaque on the wall in the in the lobby of the company, for instance. And I'm really interested in how I think values are so important because uh, it, it goes to, to faith and our belief system, what matters to us. But how to get to an organization's values and truly, as you say in the book, ensure that they help us unify rather than squelch diversity and innovation. And I'm wondering if, you know, this is a little bit of a difficult question and my apologies, but if you had an example of, of each of those where you've worked with, you know, all these companies and organizations, one where you really think the companies or organizations' values did unify, uh, maybe what they were, how it worked. And then, unfortunately, without naming names, uh, an instance where the potential just wasn't realized. Maybe there was a gap between the rhetoric and the reality or whatever it was that just caused things to be shut down so that diversity and innovation weren't really happening in the way that the values program seemed to suggest they could or would. Yeah, great question. Let, let me start with the latter because sadly it's it's easy to come up with where the gaps are. And yeah, out of respect for organizations, I won't name names, but um, what I'm about to say could apply to so many different organizations I've dealt with. Um, sometimes it can be as simple as um, things like time zones, which I know is going to sound super basic to those of us who work in a global world, but companies who will be like, we're, we're very much a global company. We're not just about our U.S. headquarters in Indianapolis. And I'm, I'm making that up right now so for a company headquartered there. Um, but then by default, all the important meetings are scheduled around 
in an Indianapolis-centric time. And always the people in Europe or Asia are taking the difficult call times. So this is a super simple behavior that caused us to go, oh, so we really aren't, you know, committed to what works best for everyone. To a positive example, and, you know, this company's big enough that something could be said that's um, to their their inauthenticity at times, too, about living out their values. But one of the, the first ways I got engaged with Google was uh, many of your listeners will be familiar with Google's 20% practice where they've said, you know, anyone who works for Google gets 20% of their time freed up to work on some type of innovative project. And so that's how they came up with things like Gmail and Google Glass and uh, the Chrome and many of the innovations that have emerged. So where this was a challenge is Google also talked very much about being a global inclusive company. And as Google was beginning to hire more aggressively in the Asia Pacific region, they would ask potential job candidates. So you're going to get 20% of your time to innovate however you like. Um, how might you use that 20% of your time? And they kind of just get blank stares or, um, well, whatever my boss would want me to do or, you know, it's, and, and Google knew what was going on. They weren't like, oh, okay, like these are, are just bad job candidates. Um, they, they understood that they were going against the norm of that culture. They also knew that if they just were like, okay, in Asia, we won't do the 20% thing. They're going to lose a core organizational value. So what they did was change the way they framed it and allow somebody who's perhaps more hierarchical and risk averse um, to have some a, a more concrete rubric by which they could think through what would be an effective way of using the 20% rather than getting rid of it altogether. So I liked that way of, of retaining a core innovative value that was unique to them at Google, but realizing they had to adapt it if they were going to actually bring about the highest level of engagement and performance from people who have very different cultural values hardwired within them. Okay. Yeah. In other words, to be to be flexible, um, staying with with trust, which we we brought up in the first question, or I did. Um, what do you think is some things you've seen or you advocate for that really help protect and enhance trust? And then maybe an example of something that really punctures trust and and happens way too often. Yeah. So if if I use an international example again, and then I'll I'll put it back to some of these issues that relate to the polarization between us, even from the same background. Uh, I mean, what the classic example I often see is that many Western business individuals will, you know, travel to places like the Middle East or to Asia or even sub-Saharan Africa and think that the dinner out is an optional part, you know, and oftentimes you're exhausted. You've been at the office all day, you're jet lagged and like, ah, I'm going to pass on dinner and may have missed out on the point that building trust um, is far more uh, successfully done by hanging out together over dinner and drinks than it was the contract that you went through um, day in and day out. And hey, by the way, I often give this message the reverse direction. If I'm sitting seated with Chinese business people who are traveling to the U.S., like, hey, understand that they are going to pour over that contract meticulously and whether or not you join them for dinner may be a moot point to them. So I think it's just understanding that what builds our trust is different. Of course, when we look at it, at the, the potentially polarizing issues, it's it's that whole same kind of issue of, well, the, the very fact that you cited an academic researcher or a scientist for you, you thought that was credible and was going to build my trust. For me, that actually erodes their trust, you know, to if we look at all the polarization that's happening. 
happened through the, the pandemic and that. So it's it's having an understanding that what builds trust for me may not be the same as you. And so that that openness and flexibility that we keep talking about has to also be uh, appealed to in terms of trust. It making it even even simpler. I mean, you and I both know lots of people who a, a feel-good endearing story will really cause some people to be trusting and other people. It's like, I don't give a flying rip about that. Give me some data and some hard facts. So, you know, it's just kind of a, it's, it's that reading what is going to build trust for you and then kind of pivoting my, my argument or my uh, interaction based upon that. Yeah, no, I, I remember in the book, the dichotomy you cite that some people will like the story and some people will want the statistics. And I, you know, I think that can often be valid and, um, Part of having a good conversation is realizing what that other party, you know, feels comfortable with or prefers. There's and, another uh, piece of that, Dan, that uh, you may have seen Amy Cuddy's research and Susan Fisk on warmth versus competence. Yeah, and, I like that yeah, a lot. Yeah. yeah. So another key thing of some people, I, I don't care at all if you're, you know, I was renting a car not too long ago and the queue was really long. And I noticed that the people behind the service counter were chit-chatting with every customer about what brought him to town. I'm like, oh, dear. Or God, just let me get my car and get out of here. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, there can be extremes, but generally speaking, yes, both warmth and competency at reasonably good levels is a, a good way to build trust and, and ignore one either of those two variables, and uh, it probably won't survive. Um, moving to a, a section of the book that was on gender, there were some pretty stunning statistics. I, I'd read these to one degree or another elsewhere to an extent. But uh, I'm talking about, for instance, directors that they're almost always white, they're almost always guys. And then the statistic that women speak only 30% as much as men in top grossing movies and, of course, have fewer lead roles, which I've noticed for years. Uh, I even dated a woman just briefly who had been first camera person for the Cone Brothers, and um, she was having a very hard time in Hollywood ma- making progress in her career. My, my question has to do with, you, you mentioned rightly so, that the career clock and the biological clock aren't necessarily in sync. So sometimes a woman is uh, seeking to have a first child, for instance, or a second child at a point where they might be expected to be moving into middle management. Have you, have you seen instances where companies have found good ways to to handle that competition between the career clock and the biological clock? I, I certainly hope so, because um, otherwise it leads to fundamental lack of opportunity. Yeah, I think I think certainly there's been increased consciousness about it. So companies are, you know, through things like bias training and that being careful to say, let's not assume that that individual is not right for this promotion just because they're expecting or maybe entering that phase of life. Um, but to be honest, I mean, as I talk to a lot of the women who are really driving this work, it feels like. You know, a lot of the reports that we hear is, yes, progress is being made and that the rate that we're going in about 147 years, I recently <laughs> yeah. saw in the World Economic Forum, we'll, we'll see gender equity as it relates to this. So I think we need a lot more innovation on what it really takes to do this and, you know, gender equity. And, you know, maybe it's easy for me to say as a, as a white cisgendered straight guy, but maybe COVID it's it's one of the silver linings of it that the flexibility and the working uh, remotely from home and seeing that wow some people were not only as productive but more productive has actually helped underrepresented groups like women be able to demonstrate that 
you know, giving them some flexibility in their time is not something that has to work against their career progression. Um, yeah, no, I, I spend, you know, some portion of time on, on LinkedIn and uh, you look at the, the hierarchy <laughs> and uh, it's pretty monolithic still. Uh, in fact, I, I wrote a book called Blah, 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 Snarky Guide to Office Lingo. And I define, define diversity as in senior management, a short white guy, um, which remains altogether too true. So um, you also bring up in the book um, religious diversity, which certainly exists. And for a lot of people, um, you know, religion is an important part of their life. And yet it rarely gets cited when companies are talking about diversity. Um, anything you want to add there kind of as we come to a close? Because I know that comes back to you, uh, your own background and upbringing. So I, I wanted to make sure we got to that, yeah, that uh, part of the conversation. I, I particularly find it's a... It's a topic of non-discussion in U.S. companies. I think in places like the Middle East, it's just kind of a given that religious diversity yeah, is part of the conversation. Um, yeah, I, I would say, I mean, how many of us grew up saying religions and, religion and politics are the third rails? And like it or not, in the di digital diverse world that we're living in now, people are having these conversations. They're just whispering about them behind closed doors. So I, I think we need to put it more at the forefront and allow people to be comfortable with conversations about religious differences. And I, I don't think diversity uh, means that I have to somehow like give up my own values, beliefs, and convictions. There's a place for that, but am I going to allow you to have values, beliefs, and convictions that may be different than mine? And can we find a way together to, to work towards some kind of common goal at our workplace or in our, our community, et cetera? Sure. Um, so just one last question. Um, something I didn't cover in this conversation from the book that you'd like to make sure you get across to listeners. Yeah, I, I guess ultimately I would say our, our differences, uh, while they feel problematic and divisive, are actually a key catalyst for overcoming our polarization, that the differences themselves are, are not the problem. It's how do we actually use them to come up with innovative solutions to do it. And so my hope is that the cultural intelligence work through things like the book will actually help people to see that through a very, albeit pragmatic utilitarian approach allows us to say, oh, actually um, finding some common ground and then zooming back to our differences can actually help us allow us to, to solve some of the things that are most polarizing to us. Yeah. And have a richer conversation that's going to get to a, a deeper, more profound solution um, and let everyone realize their potential. Uh, I, I want to thank you, David, for being on the show. This has been episode 117, the topic, How Do We Overcome Polarization? My um, guest, David Livermore, he is the author of Digital, Diverse, and Divided, How to Talk to Racists, Compete with Robots, and Overcome Polarization. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I went back to good old Albert Einstein because I love this quote. He said, Everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. Until next time, take care and be well. Mm -hmm.